everybody, welcome back to the Financial Freedom Show. My name is Rob Berger and it's good to be back. I started to say I took a week off, but it didn't really feel like a week off. Uh, but it was a good week and uh, I'm glad to be back. If you're in the chat, I see you, I see your questions. Please give me a thumbs up if you can hear me and see me. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, if you're new to all of this, if you can tag me in any questions or topics you want me to cover, that way I can see it quickly. And I will do timestamps. So if you're listening to this, you know, not live, and you're like, man, I wish there were timestamps. Well, they'll be there by tomorrow night. Thanks, Tyler, for the thumbs up. Um, just a couple of things I want to say. Got a, a question that I'm going to, from Twitter, which I'm not really a Twitter person. At least I don't, I'm not generally a social media person. I mean, I have accounts. Occasionally I'll say something stupid, you know. Um, but I, I do, I got a, a, a request to look at a, a mutual fund. I'm happy to look at it. You know, I, I titled this live stream, you know, investing in an uncertain world. Of course, the world's always uncertain. It just, sometimes it feels a little more, more uncertain than others. Uh, and I see you flying doctor. Hmm. Maybe you're a pilot. I don't know. Anyway, um, Obviously, if you're like me, you've been glued to the news, watching uh, this craziness unfold. Um, and it, it's interesting to me from a purely investment perspective. Uh, I think, was it last Thursday it all started? Something like that. And the, the market just cratered, as I recall. And a good friend of mine, I've mentioned him many times. I don't think he watches this show, but he, he, he invests differently than I do. And so we have a, a, a lively back and forth about, about all of this. And, and I enjoy talking to him. I enjoy hearing someone from someone who I respect and who I think, you know, really has given us a lot of thought, but, you know, reaches totally different conclusions than I do. So he's got his hedge, you know, his whole hedge system. You know, he's buying puts. He's got his trailing stop losses. And, and he's telling me how much he's made on his hedges and um, that, I, I should I should get out and then the, the corrections coming will be down 30 to 50 percent. Then I can get back in. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and of course, by the end of the day that day, the market was up. And I'm like, see, you, <laughs> we can't predict what the market's going to do over the next five hours, let alone days, weeks, months. I mean, long term, it's interesting. The longer you look at it, probably the better we would be at predicting things. Uh, but. With options, at least the majority of them, you can get long dated options, but you're really sort of betting on short term price movements. And I know that people think they can predict it, but I've yet to meet anyone who can. And uh, you know, some people will say, "Well, I'm going to I'm going to buy, say, I'm going to I'm going to buy puts, for example, as a hedge, as an insurance policy." Well, insurance is expensive, and I would rather protect myself in other ways, like keeping my debt low or non-existent, um, saving, oversaving a bit, uh, and keeping, you know, my expenses below, you know, my income. And uh, that's been my approach for forever, as far as I can recall. And uh, it works for me. You know, maybe more complicated investment strategies work for you, but I've just yet to see it work effectively for anybody. Um, that's the first thing. Second thing, I'm, do, I'm, I'm working on a lot of videos. I tell you, I'm working on these videos and it takes weeks for them to come out. 
But I am working on one that looks at Monte Carlo analysis, in part as compared to using historical data, but it's mainly focused on Monte Carlo analysis, which is you know this your ability to sort of simulate future you know market returns and inflation, and figure out how many what percentage of the, you know let's say it looks at a thousand scenarios out thirty years. What percentage of those scenarios would your money last, say, in retirement, if that's what we're simulating? And I had a comment, I guess it was, I don't know if it was a comment to a YouTube video or maybe an email, but the person pointed out that I, I looked at this, and actually, let me just show you on the screen real quick. So this is new retirement. This is, again, a demo account, but it has um, a Monte Carlo analysis that you can use, and uh, which is, by the way, when you look at this 99% chance of success, if we hover over this I, that's using Monte Carlo analysis. A thousand, you can see, well, if I move away, you don't see it, but a thousand simulations. And you can actually go into the Monte Carlo analysis and make some assumptions, rerun it. It gives you sort of, you know, the optimistic assumptions and, you know, all the different, you know, what if things are really bad? But someone made the comment that I think I'd said I, I aim for 90%. This, this may have been looking at the Monte Carlo analysis and personal capital, but in any event, 90% is what I was aiming for. And they thought that was actually too high. I don't, I, I don't need to get that level of success. And I was struggling with how to respond to that, frankly. And then finally, it, it, a light bulb went off. And, and, and it's this, you can't assume, it would be a mistake to say, okay, I'm gonna run whatever Monte Carlo analysis I want. And this is the percent that I wanna achieve before I call it success, whether it's 90%, 75%, some other number. And the reason is Monte Carlo analysis doesn't work in a vacuum. You have to input certain parameters. Now, in a tool like New Retirement, some of those parameters are entered for you, but you need to know, the, the, the engine needs to know what the average return is you want to assume. And it could be for your portfolio as a whole, or it could be by asset class, and the standard deviation, the volatility, right? And it's only if you have that, can it run the analysis? And the point is, and we'll just use new retirement as an example. When you set this up, and I think for this demo account, I've just got, uh, let's see, I think I just have one account. I put in right here, you can see it. I put in the pessimistic return for this portfolio. You know, th think about it for the next 30, 40, 50 years at 4% and the optimistic at nine. Now, um, then when I'm running analysis, I can say, okay, I want to use the optimistic, 9%, or I want to use pessimistic. And we see here it goes to 4. I don't know how well you can see that, but that says 4%. Or I can say I'll take an average, and it just averages it out, and so now it's 6.5%. The point is the Monte Carlo analysis will change based on whether you pick optimistic, average, or pessimistic. So I would agree that if you pick some pessimistic return and in inflation assumptions, and you hit 90%, that's probably extraordinary. If you pick optimistic and you hit 90%, that may just be okay. Depends how optimistic your assumptions are. So I guess I, the point I wanna make just for today's video, uh, live stream is if you're using Monte Carlo analysis, you have to understand that there are inputs that go into that. Uh, and depending on the tool you're using, you can control none of them. Like at personal capital, I don't think you can control any of the inputs. With new retirement, you can control you control these, and these, these apply not only to returns, but also to inflation. 
Portfolio Visualizer actually has a Monte Carlo analysis tool that's more robust in terms of what you can control. I'll show it to you. It's right here. We go to, uh, where is it? Oh, here it is. And you've got a lot of different inputs that you can control. Uh, so if you were like wanting to just play with Monte Carlo analysis, I would probably start here at Portfolio Visualizer. But I'll just show you this very quickly. Um, so we got a $2 million portfolio. Let's assume our expenses are, um, let's change this. Why does it do that? Here we go. We're going to change it to 2 million, be 80 grand a year, right? So let's say, um, we'll say $10,000. No, that's too much. We'll say 8,000 a month. Oops, not 8 million. <clears throat> 8,000 a month. And if we go to overview, so we've, you see, under 15% chance of success. Well, that's not good, but it's, it's the pessimistic assumption. If we go to average, it runs Monte Carlo analysis, and we're up to 59%. And then if we go to optimistic, well, look, we're at 85%. And if you looked at, it, looked at it this way, in this part of the tool, I know I'm going through this kind of fast, but uh, it's the same thing. It's going to change the, the results based on your inputs, right? Anyway. <laughs> you're like, Rob, look, it's late. I, I don't even know what you're saying. I, I, I think I'm on the wrong channel. All right, whatever. Okay, so um, I want to look at one fund. They wanted me to look at TVIIX, and I have no idea what that is. But, um, and they're, in, they're on the show. I see them. Yes. Hey, Rob, I see you. Their name's not Rob. They said, hey, Rob. I think my name's Rob. In any event, it's very confusing. You're probably wondering what's in the cup, but it's just coffee. It's probably why I'm on edge. Uh, what's the ticker? TVIIX. Is that right? Yeah. Well, it's a life cycle. Hmm. So is that like a target date retirement fund? It's relatively it's cheap, right? 10 basis points. Um, life cycle index. I'm guessing. Oh, you can't even see it. Hang on. Let me pull it up. I want to pull it up in two places. That's funny. I want to pull it up on the website of the fund, and it's like doesn't rank in Google. It seems kind of odd. All right. So here it is in Morningstar. Um, yeah, this is 2060. So this is just this is your basic uh, target date retirement fund. I would think it would be perfectly fine. It's 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 relatively inexpensive, right? That's pretty good for a target date fund, which tells me I'm sure it's index funds. If we actually go to the website. Yeah, well, that, maybe it's in the title. I guess it is. Yeah, there we go. Index. I guess it is an index fund. And we can look at the portfolio. It should be about 90-10 would be my guess because it's 2060. Uh, yep, 60, 90, actually a little bit more, 92 and a half in equities. Got a good split, in my opinion, between um, U.S. And, and foreign. It's got some fixed income. I mean, this looks like a reasonable fund to me. Yeah. Again, in a, in, a, in a retirement account. Again, it's obviously a very quick. That's the thing about index funds or, you know, a, a target date fund that's based on index funds. You know, you don't have to do a lot of analysis. What's the asset class? What are the fees? If it's in a taxable account, you want to think about taxes. You know, if it's a target date fund, what's its stock bond allocation? They're all going to be very similar 
if you're looking at like 2060 fund, I, I mean, there could be differences. You don't want to assume they're going to be somewhere around 90-10, but the vast majority of them that I've looked at are, um, you know, that's the beauty of index fund investing. Okay. All right. On to your questions. Gus. I am retired. I have one and a half million in cash. Wow. In my IRA, would like to rebalance in a three-fund index portfolio, all right? Should I do a one-time rebalance or stretch it out incrementally with current situation? Yeah, so I get that question in different ways a lot. Um, I personally would just get it done at one time. You know, in, in, in effect, what you're asking me is, is the stock market going to go down because of the current situation, things going on in Ukraine, Russia. Uh, and by the way, it just amazes me how the world governments have come together on this, or at least majority of them. And the ability to inflict financial pain on a country so quickly, it's unbelievable. Uh, you know, you, you, you feel for, I mean, you know, the citizens of Russia, I'm, sure, I'm just going to guess that some are in favor of what Putin is doing and some are vehemently opposed to it. Uh, not that I have any insight in, into that at all, other than, you know, like you, what I read, you know, online, New York Times, whatever. Uh, but it, it is unfortunate. Of course, you've got the loss of life and the destruction of property and the injuries, which is, you know, horrific and the worst of it all, but then you have the financial pain that will be felt by innocent people. You know, who, who knows how it'll affect us? We'll see. Uh, but in any event, it, it is certainly, I get it that there's a current situation and it's uncertain. So if someone said to me, uh, I just don't feel comfortable, you know, putting in a lump sum all at once or in Gus's case, taking cash and just, you know, one and a half million, a lot of money, putting it all into three funds right away. I just feel more comfortable, comfortable, you know, doing it, you know, whatever, one twelfth of the money each month for a year, for example, you, you wouldn't hear any argument from me um, whether that will turn out to be a, a better approach than just putting it all in now. Hmm, there's no way to know. That, and that's important. It's important to recognize that there's no way to know. Some people think they figured it out. They do know that the correction is coming, here's when it's going to happen, but they don't. Uh, and, and, and news stories are designed to make us think that some people do know. Because you see it all the time. I see it on CNBC all the time. Uh, so-and-so, comma, who correctly or accurately predicted the housing crash or the tech bubble or whatever, says blah, blah, blah. And you're like, wow, it must be pretty good if, if they can they predicted the first one, or, you know, whatever. Now they must be a good predictor. What you don't hear is a couple of things. One is they were often predicting it for months or years before it happened. That's number one. But even if that's not true, even if they nailed it, just, you know, whatever. What they don't tell you is, by the way, and here are 4,000 other people who got it completely wrong. Um, yeah. And so they make it sound like folks can actually predict all of this and they can't. And there, there's also, there are some that just, you know, my friend likes to send me, well, I won't name names, but a certain newsletter. They always, this newsletter, that's all they do is predict doom and gloom 24-7. And then they they love to tell you when they're right a couple of times a year or a decade. 
So anyway, Gus, what I would do is put it all in. You know, I get that prices are high, bonds and stocks. And we've got now a war in Europe. Uh, and so, you know, we've got inflation that's, that's high. And maybe, I don't know, because of the economic sanctions, could that send inflation higher? Maybe, I don't know. I get the uncertainty. And so if someone's, again, if you wanted to stretch it out over a year, you'd get no complaint from me. Yeah. Arun says, um, balance, I can't read the first, but balance growth stocks to value stocks last year and paying a lot of taxes this year. How do you reduce taxes while rebalancing? Ah, well, there's a couple of ways. You rebalance, you, 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 you use tax deferred accounts as much as you can for the rebalancing. That's one way. If you're in your taxable account, you, you don't, I don't reinvest tax, uh, dividends automatically. They go to a cash account. I can use those to rebalance. If I make new contributions, I, I use those to rebalance. Um, I don't, when, when, I re, when I rebalance, let's say I want 50% US stocks and now it's at 60%. And I'm going to rebalance. I don't feel a need to get it all the way back to 50. You know, maybe get it back to 55. That's okay, right? Uh, it doesn't have to be right back to your original plan. I talked about that in a video on opportunistic rebalancing, which you can check out. Uh, and, and some would say, eh, don't even rebalance. Right? I mean, that, there's an argument for not rebalancing. That's a whole nother discussion. But that was sort of Jack Bogle's uh, philosophy. Um, I don't really f follow that, although uh, I, I've been able to rebalance without triggering a lot of taxes. Uh, if I got to the point where I couldn't rebalance without triggering taxes, uh, I guess it would depend on the circumstances what I would do. I will say the other strategy that I've considered is changing my asset allocation to avoid taxes and rebalancing. And what I mean is, you know, I kind of do, I have REITs and I have emerging markets. REITs are all in my retirement account. I considered, I think I mentioned this in a, in a live stream a few weeks ago, I considered getting rid of REITs, taking what was in REITs and just folding it into my sort of total U.S. stock market, which includes REITs, small amount. And, um, and that would give me extra room to, to do the rebalancing for, for that asset class, which would you know, be U.S. stocks in a retirement account. Yeah, I'm giving up some exposure to REITs, but it might be worth it if I save on taxes. I don't, or I don't have to give up all 10% of my REITs. Maybe I can just give up 5%, move that to U.S. stocks in the, in the uh, tax-deferred account, and then use that to rebalance. I didn't have to do that, as it turned out, but I considered it. So there's a lot of different ways you can do it, I think. Uh, why are you? That's their name. I don't know how to pronounce that. You have invested in some individual stocks. It worked out well for you, but if you started with that and it didn't go well, how long before you would give it up and go all index funds? Uh, four, maybe five minutes. <laughs> I don't know. Um, it wasn't always easy. I mean, there were times when it's been down. I, well, that's not, well, when I had my Apple stock, you know, got hurt in 2018 with the market generally, but I ended up buying more. So my theory was, why is the stock going down? Is it, is it because of the, the economy and market generally? Is it because the company maybe had a bad quarter, but I think their business is still sound? So I can endure a fair amount of pain. Uh, but 
so I, I so I guess that's a, a roundabout way of saying it. I don't really know, but it's one of the challenges of investing in individual stocks. It's why I generally don't recommend it, notwithstanding that I do it, <laughs> which I know. Uh, that's in, that's inconsistent. That's like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. Uh, so I, I don't know how long I would last if if it was if it really turned bad. I can tell you this: if if it was a general market decline, and that's why you know which happened, right? I mean, all my stocks went down with the COVID crash, just like everything else did. It didn't even occur to me to, to sell at all, other than I did sell a few things, but it was for tax loss harvesting, and then I went back into something else. Those are the bank stocks. So, whoops, here we go. Mike, welcome to the show. He's the crazy man in the pink wig. VJ, oh, now where is VJ? VJ, where are you from? You don't say in here. He's from Michigan. Oh, he does. From Ann Arbor, Michigan. Good. Thought you left it out. Whew. Um, is it possible to hold a uh, our reserve cash in inflation-proof currency, like a, a Swiss franc. What banks can do this for? Is the Swiss franc inflation-proof? How is that possible? And what about the exchange rate? I don't know. I, I've not heard that before. Someone's going to have to educate me, VJ. And, and then what about the, the, the exchange rate? And if you're worried about inflation for cash reserves, why not put it in, a, in, a, in um, like a, a short-term tips or something that gets adjusted for inflation? I'll have to research that one. I've not heard that one before. Stephen O'Brien, welcome to the show. Glad you're here. We chat back and forth from time to time on email. I haven't been replying to emails. I do read them. I just, it's unbelievable the number. Sorry. Alexander, my job doesn't offer 401k. I'm, I max out the Roth every year. I use extra money in a taxable. Should I find a job, well, with a 401k or find a way to get my, my self-employment income? Well, yeah, if you, if you have self-employment income, you can you can create you can open. I think for most people, a SEP IRA is probably the way to go. It's not the only option. It's probably one of the simplest. It's it's more simple than like a solo four hundred one k. But you know, depending on your income, you can put put more away in a SEP IRA than you can a four hundred one k. Again, depends on your income. So that's a good way to go. Uh, in terms of a job with a four hundred one k, I mean it, it's obvious, you know, it's it's certainly not the only consideration when it comes to a job, of course. But I think it's an important one. So, like, you know, if you found another job that you like just as much, but it happens to have a four hundred one k, but it, you know, doing work you love, getting paid well, people you like to work with, of course, that's always hard to know in advance. But yeah, I would pick that. Um, yeah. The other thing you could do, by the way, is talk to your employer. Hey, we need a 401k. It's not going to happen overnight, but you never know. I worked, um, I think it was, was, I, was it when I was at the PCAOB or Bearing Point? I can't remember, but one of the employers didn't have good investment options. And so we started talking to HR about it. It took a year or two. Maybe it was the PCAOB. I just can't remember. But they eventually added some good funds. So it does work. 
Jock Doc, all I see is go Buckeyes in the comment, which is all I really need. Latest HSA is a great alternative idea, uh, have an inherited and an individual IRA. I'm wondering about the upcoming RMDs. Is there any way to divert money to HSA and avoid taxes? Well, you can do, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what you have in mind. You can do a one-time IRA to HSA transfer. I think it's just one time, not once a year. I think it's literally one time. So you can check that out. And there's, of course, a limit to how much you can, you can do. I don't know what the limit is. It may just be the limit for the, oh, it may just be the limit for the HSA. Uh, if, you know, if you have a HSA, uh, obviously you can max it out first, right, uh, before you add to any more traditional retirement accounts. And uh, not with an inherited, I don't think, but with a regular IRA, you can do Roth conversions, right? Of course, it's going to, you know, whether that makes sense is going to depend on a lot of factors. Uh, but it is an important point, and I was I was I was on the phone uh, today with uh, a financial advisor. I paid them a few hundred bucks to do. This is at a big brokerage, a uh, financial plan. I wanted to hear. Basically, I wanted to see if I was missing anything. We talked a lot about Roth conversions, and it's interesting because you're you're weighing countless issues. Uh, depending on your finances, you've got issues uh, like. Uh, it, do you want to give to charity, and, and therefore, would you consider a qualified, you know, charitable donation from your IRA once you hit the RMD years? Because you can you can give hundred grand a year, two hundred thousand for a, a, a married couple. I don't think that number is indexed for inflation. I don't think, uh, but that's going to be you know whether you choose to do that, and of course, it doesn't have to be a full hundred thousand, but whether you choose to do that will affect whether whether and to what extent you should do Roth conversions 10, 15 years earlier. So huge impact. And then depending on your finances, the other potential benefit of converting is it lowers the value of your total assets because you're paying taxes, right, uh, on the Roth conversions, which can be good from an estate planning perspective, uh, particularly when you think about the amounts that can be excluded from the estate tax, which are, are, are the exemptions pretty high now. But I think it's in 2026, I think. It's changing. I don't even know what the number is going to be. But all of there's all kinds of factors uh, that go into whether a Roth conversion makes sense. But in any event, uh, that you, know, you could consider that, too, as a way to ultimately reduce your RMDs. All right. G branding. Can you discuss the turnover ratio of VS... BSX. So the turnover ratio refers to how much of the assets are sold each year and bought and sold. Uh, oh, well, this is a short-term treasury, so I'm guessing it's very high, very high. I, it could be over 100%. I don't know. Let's find out. Go to portfolio, I think. And yeah, it's down here, right? No, it's about 66%. I guess I got, I got a little carried away when I said it could be over 100. So this is very normal, I think, for a bond fund, particularly short term, because they're constantly buying and selling bonds, right? Uh, I mean, the duration on this is what, two years? Yeah, two years. So anyway, uh, am I getting killed on hidden transaction fees? No, I can't imagine that you are. 
and taxes. Well, in my taxable account. So the taxes, no, you're probably not getting much in the way of capital gains. Well, certainly if, if interest rates go up, you don't have to worry about capital gains. Oh, financial humor. Okay, let's look at performance and um, distributions. Oh, so there's some these last two years, but still like, well, that's just 20. So there were some capital gains. Well, not much. You know, seven cents, short-term, long-term on a $20 uh, per share fund. Of course, there wasn't much <laughs> income either, seven cents. Uh, but it's a short-term bond fund and rates are low. So, um, you know, I don't think this is killing you on taxes, probably. Yeah. No, there you go. That's my guess. Of course, I'm not a tax expert. Um, all right. So VJ's back with another question. Those folks from Michigan, cutting in line. Anyway, Berkshire Hathaway, liked the video. No. Yeah, I own a couple of shares. How do I book for annual conference? So when I did it last, I got a notice through my brokerage. And I forget, I guess, I think I maybe mailed something back in. I don't think I did it via email. I think I had to mail something. But I got it from the brokerage that holds the shares. So I would reach out to your broker. And if that's not right, they'll tell you. Now, it's been... I want to say the last time I went was 14 or 15. I'm thinking about going. If I do go, and there are others of you that go, we'll have to meet up. Um, it's a lot of fun if you've never been. So they have the, the you know, the, the shareholder meeting, and it's in a um, convention center, like 40,000 people. And the first time I went, so they played this, they had the, they played this video that they had prepared. And uh, for those of you that, um, have watched Breaking Bad. Now, I've since watched Breaking Bad, but at the time, I just knew of it. I hadn't watched it. So I'm watching this video. So we're all in this big convention center. There's 40,000 of us. And, you know, there's Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger at, at, up front and Bill Gates is there and whatever. And Rob Berger. <laughs> anyway, um, I was up in the, in the, the cheap seats. Uh, and uh, this video starts playing. And it's, the camera zooms in on a camper in the middle of the desert. I'm like, what? What is this? And it goes in, and there's Cran Brian Cranston, and, and uh, what's the other guy's name? I forget. Someone will tell me. But, you know, the two main characters on Breaking Bad. And they're cooking. And all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door. They go, and they open it, and there's Warren Buffett. And he's upset with them because he thinks that they're moving into his territory. For what, you ask? Peanut brittle. He does own C's candy. And so, like, it, it was just very funny. And uh, there was one with Schwarzenegger in it. And wanted a, he wanted a, a, a bad guy to play in one of his movies. And he wanted someone really tough. And Warren offered to do it himself. And Arnold was like, that's not going to work. Who would believe you as a bad guy? I need someone tough. And he wanted Charlie Munger. Anyway, very funny stuff. It's a great, uh, and then they have big, uh, all of the businesses, you know, that Berkshire owns or, or holds shares in, they have this big um, exhibit hall, you know, Coca-Cola's there, I don't know, Brooks Running Shoes, you know, whatever. Oh, the railroad they own is there with the giant train set. It's a lot of fun. And then they have, they had Patrick Wolf, who's a grandmaster. He was playing blindfold chess against five people. 
they had a, a, a an Olympic a table tennis person and you could play against her for like two or three points. My son played against her. I think he got one point. He scored. And then I think she demolished him after that. Anyway, I don't know why I went down that rabbit hole. James, I always hear buying when the market is down is good because you get more shares. Well, that is so true. Is the same true for bond funds such as BND? Should I be excited to be buying ETFs now? Well, it's certainly true that whenever you buy something, you want to pay less for it, right? If prices of a bond fund go down, that means yields go up, right? And we do know that yields are ticking up. I don't even know what the 10-year is right now. What's the 10-year? 10-year Treasury yield. That's it's down. I mean, it was over 2%. Now it's looks like 1.9. No, 1.84. Yields have gone down, probably as folks have, have moved money into the safety of US government bonds. But sure, certainly, yeah, as prices go down, um, you know, it's a better deal. Uh, I think for most of us, you're just dollar cost averaging, right? You're putting money in every paycheck with your 401k once a month or a quarter or whatever in your IRA. Maybe you're, you're contributing every month in a taxable account. Um, and that's for the most part what I do. Um, I do have some cash that I've accumulated that honestly, I just need to go in and, 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 and put it in the right funds from a rebalancing perspective. I, I probably do it tomorrow. I haven't done it, but not for any sort of market timing reason. Um, but James, I don't know how much, if I answered your question, but certainly as prices go down, you're getting a, a better deal. All other things being equal, particularly for an index fund. I mean, obviously for an individual bond, or company, prices could be going down because, you know, the company is hurting. Um, I mean, did you see Russia increased their, the, the, their central bank increased their rates to 20%? Anyway, that's not what you asked about. Okay, John. Hey, Rob, would you discuss your strategy for your holdings in Berkshire after Munger and Buffett are gone? Well, I suspect there won't be a lot of movement in the stock when they retire or pass away. I could be wrong about that, but I'm not concerned about the future of the company without Buffett and Munger. Uh, from an operating perspective, those companies operate now on their own. I mean, Warren Buffett's not really involved in the operations of Geico, right? Or the railroad or the utility or uh, whatever. Uh, so the, the, the operation of the existing businesses doesn't concern me. He's already got two managers that are managing almost $40 billion of the investment portfolio and has every confidence in them. Uh, you know, I, Warren Buffett can get deals and can evaluate deals better than anyone, right? So I think in this, you know, I think the days of Berkshire growing like it has over the last five or six decades, not as much more recently, but, you know, it's next 60 years won't look like the past 60 years. It just can't. There's too much capital. You know, there's just no way you could get the kind of returns. And that would be true if Warren Buffett lived to be 200. And he said this himself. So, but I think as a, an overall very tax efficient, it's a great tax efficient, diversified investment in my view. I don't, that being said, I don't have a ton in there at all, actually. One or 2% maybe of our portfolios in Berkshire. I do, I have here recently thought I might add some to it. 
Yeah, I'm not too worried about what will happen. I do wonder if the, if they'll start paying a dividend at some point after he's gone. I don't think they will before before then. But honestly, I'd rather they didn't. But So Mike says, do you think most people realize that almost all Monte Carlo analysis does not factor in international stocks, small U.S. stocks, and the portfolio costs? Well, um, I'm not sure I agree with that. Like we were looking at new retirement, for example. You have to set the return figures yourself, and so you could set them net of fees. Now, in my case, I don't have any fees. I mean, my weighted average expense ratio is seven basis points. So I can pretty much ignore that. Um, but you could put those fees in. And, and actually, with um, if we go to I, you know the Monte Carlo analysis, and I have not spent a lot of time with this. I'm working on that for the video I want to put together. Um, but you, know, you can do this by asset class, right? Now, I haven't dug into how Portfolio Visualizer determines the average returns and the um, standard deviation. It, but, but my guess is it pulls it from its database because it has the data. Um, and then like use full history. Yeah, use full available history for asset returns. I don't know. I, I would think this does use, depending on if you if you put in U.S. small cap, for example, whatever, it's going to use U.S. small cap data. I don't know why it wouldn't because it has it. So I don't know if that's responding, Mike, or maybe you have something else in mind. I'm missing it. Um, but, okay, Blake. How would you invest for someone in their 90s who has a comfortable amount to live on, all cash or low risk or perhaps some market exposure? Well, it depends on their goals, right? It, you know, let's say they've got more than they'll ever need and they want to um, give the money to charity. Uh, you know, you might take what they're going to need and invest it one way and take what they want to leave behind. It doesn't have to be to charity. It could also be to family members or whatever. A different way. Um, so I would I, I would probably think of it in those two chunks. I think I mean, there could be a gazillion other factors that could change all of this, right? But um, and, and and knowing how much they need to live on is not an easy thing. I mean, for starters, you don't know how long they're going to live. Uh, but at ninety, you know, you you, you know, you also don't know health issues, and, and in the sense of you know, could they really start to have a, a, a significant medical needs at some point and long-term care and all those sorts of things, which, by the way, is a factor for all of us as we try to figure out, you know, planning. But um, so that's how I would try to think about it. What do I need to live on? And I, I would certainly be conservative in that. So it would, it would be, you know, if I thought I needed this much, I'd probably set aside that much. And I still might invest it, you know, 50-50. I don't know. I mean, maybe it'd be more. Uh, I, I, to me, I wouldn't go super conservative, uh, but in any event, I mean, there, there are a lot of other factors. I mean, you know, one thing I always look at is, and this is true now for me, you can pick some allocation, 75-25, let's say, and that can be perfectly reasonable. But one question I look at is, for the 25% that's in fairly stable 
fixed income, how long could I live on that? So this isn't a bucket strategy. I'm still going to have asset allocation based on percentages, but still, how long could I live on that fixed income? And I hope it, it's, a, of course, if you're in your 90s, this you know changes the equation, but I'm hoping it's at least 10 years. Now, again, in your 90s, maybe it's fewer than that, again, from a planning purpose. Um, so if someone says, you know, I'm, 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 I'm 90, 10, and I'm 70 and retired, you might think, wow, that's pretty uh, aggressive. But then they tell you that 10%, I can live on it for 20 years because they have a lot of money or maybe not a lot, but they don't spend much. Maybe they've got pension, you know, and other sources of income, social security. And so they could actually live for a very long time on that 10%. Well, you know, 90, 10 might not be unreasonable in those circumstances. Uh, so anyway, that's how I would begin to at least think about it is what do I need to live on? And then for the rest, what's my plan? Uh, and and uh, you might be a little more aggressive, even though let's just, you know, just assume they live to be a hundred to pick a number. You know, that's not a super long time, but depending on what they're going to do with the money, let's say they're going to give it to, to their children and grandchildren they may not need to spend it right away. So, I mean, it still could be long-term investing, even as it, you know, moves down a generation. So just there's a lot of factors, but that's kind of how I would begin to think through it, I think. When I'm 90, if I make it that long, I'll let you know uh, if, uh, if, if that's true. Maybe by then I'll have a totally different view. I see folks trying to spell my name. It's like hamburger, but with an E and without the ham. Mike. I have no idea what this is. For Monte Carlo, you can use more sophisticated stats such as G-A-R-C-H modeling. I don't know what that is. Okay. Yes, you can. It has to do with volatility and, and describing volatility that can change over time. Okay. That's interesting. I don't know if um, Portfolio Visualizer uses that, but when I'm digging into it, I'll, I'll keep an eye out for it. Uh, James, can you talk about, quote, fat is a tick in a Roth IRA, but keep bonds in your tax-advantaged accounts? Don't get how bonds help. If getting fat is a tick, if my asset allocation is 90-10, don't I want more stocks in Roth? Yeah, so I want to fill up Roth accounts with stock. It could be, you know, just a U.S. stock index fund, whatever your allocation is. Uh, I, to the extent I have bonds, I want to put them, if I, if I can, in traditional retirement accounts. Now, depending on your allocation, you know, you may move, in this case, your 10% uh, may be in traditional retirement accounts. But you could still have even more money beyond that in your traditional retirement accounts. That's okay. You know, that'll go into whatever, you know, stock funds you need for your asset allocation. But um, I generally want all of my bond funds or the vast majority of them. I mean, I'm, you might have some in a taxable account or, you know, um, I, I kind of lump my cash that I'm not planning to spend in my bond allocation. And I, I, I may want some in a taxable account you know, emergency fund and just, you know, sleep at night fund. <laughs> but but by and large, I want my, my fixed income in my traditional uh, 
retirement accounts. So I'm not paying taxes every year on the income, although right now it doesn't seem to be much income. But, you know, theoretically, if there's ever some income from a bond fund, I'd like to have it in a traditional account. And then um, if there's more in the traditional account beyond what I'm allocating to bonds, it'll just go into whatever, VTI, whatever your U.S. stock fund is, your international stock fund um, as well. But then in the Roth, uh, it, it would be just stocks. Again, if you can do it, right? I mean, depending on your, some might have only Roth. So, you know, you don't have that option. But I think a lot of people have both. So that's my thinking on it, James. Um, I want my, again, I want my Roth to get as fat as a tick because it's tax-free, assuming you follow the rules, and it's great from an inheritance perspective. Uh, and um, so I want that to get as, as, as big as possible. And if I'm going to have some asset classes that I don't expect uh, to return as much, but I have them, again, fixed income, just to give my, my take a little of the volatility out of the portfolio um, and so on, I'd rather have that in a traditional account because, yes, it won't grow as much, but then the result will be my RMDs won't be as big. And just generally, my taxes off of that fund won't be as much, right? That's my theory. Neil says, are you nervous about what is going on with Russia? I know I am. So I'm not nervous at all as it relates to my investments at all. I mean, they could crater, you know? I mean, frankly, I'm amazed that the markets have done as well as they have. Um, but if it's not this that causes a, a pretty significant correction or bear markets, yeah, it's gonna be something else. I don't know when, but you know, it, we're closer to that today than we were yesterday. I, I do know that. So I'm not at all worried about it from that perspective. From a from a perspective of what in the world is Putin doing? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm not lying awake worried about it, but. You know, they are a nuclear power and they, they, they're they a country that, I mean, he's, he, you know, they're a country that's ruled by, uh, you know, I start to say one person. It's not literally true, but clearly um, he's an autocrat and, you know, uh, he can do things like invade a neighbor uh, where, you know, other countries, their checks and balances. Now we'll see. You know, the pressure being put on Russia economically is, is extraordinary. Uh, so, uh, you know, we'll see how that changes things. I, you know, it's hard to imagine a country using a nuclear weapon. I mean, we can all imagine it, but I mean, it's hard to, to imagine any even modestly sane actor making that choice. Uh, but that's a worry, and it's a worry that doesn't end with Russia, right? So, you know, that's a concern to me. And, he, you know, he made the veiled, not, or not so veiled threat uh, a couple of times, actually, over the weekend. And, uh, but, you know, the, the thing is, is, if he actually did it, and I don't know exactly what the response would be from the world, but it would be, it would be, extraordinary. And um, I, yeah, I just think, I, I just think that's unlikely, but it's, it, it is scary. It just is, you know, I'm hoping, I mean, it's interesting too, 
this is kind of it's shown first of all it's taught it's taught us a lot about the people of of, of Ukraine, their willingness and, and ability to fight, their gut, their grit, and uh, a Russian military. You know, I, I I I'm slow to draw too many conclusions about the Russian military based on what's happened over the last four or five days, <laughs> but clearly they're encountering some things they didn't expect, and it's not gone well for them. And um, so, in some ways, Putin has kind of shown himself to be mm, not, not the, the strong man that I think he wanted to convey to the world, but there's still a nuclear power. <laughs> I feel like I'm like babbling on. Yeah, I guess I'm a little nervous. How's that for an answer? Do you think this is from John? <laughs> Let's talk about easy questions. Um, do you think 70% stocks... 30%, you know, I just got to go back to this. One thing that, you know, they're, they're, they're bombing residential areas. I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, I get, by the way, that in war, there can be casualties that were not intended. That's particularly true, for example, when military personnel hide within residential communities, you know, or if it's just a mistake and the United States has made its share of mistakes, but this feels like something very different. And that to me is just, I, I can't understand, I can't understand those choices that are being made. Yeah. What do I know? I'm just reading the news. John, do you think 70% stock, 30% bond is a good allocation for a 50 year old? Okay, so the first question is, when are you gonna spend the money? Maybe you're retiring now. Or maybe you're working and you plan to work until you're 70. Those are two different, very different things. For me, 70-30 would be too conservative at 50, um, but not by a large margin. And I think one could argue that 70-30 is, is reasonable or within the range of reasonableness. But again, you know, how long are you going to continue to invest? Are you adding to it? When are you going to need it? Uh, the 30% in bonds, how long could you live on that? I like, I like that as a gauge, particularly as you get closer and closer to retirement. You know, I, the, the CFP, the Certified Financial Planner I was talking to today, I, I, I raised this issue with him. I said, do you think that's a good way to think about it? He said, absolutely. And he says, I always aim for a minimum of 10 years uh, of fixed income. Again, not the bucket strategy, it's still percentages. But all of these are questions, you know. And also, as you think towards retirement, whether, John, it's now or in 10 years or 20 years or whatever, uh, what, how much of this are you going to need each year? I mean, maybe you're not going to need much of it because you've got a pension and Social Security. And then, frankly, that gives you a lot of freedom uh, to invest it in a lot of different ways. Or, you know, maybe, no, you're going to need four, four and a half percent in year one, um, in which case 70-30 might be ideal. But again, I think the big question I would have is, when, you, when, you, when are you going to start using this? Uh, if I were 15 or 20 years away, I would personally would probably still be at 90-10 uh, myself. Doesn't mean it's right for everyone. Mike, can, could you compare VTIAX and VFSAX and weigh in on owning each fund in a portfolio based on 
capitalization sizes and country allocation. This sounds like a bar exam question. I'm going to go with answer C. That's what I always did when I didn't know the answer. Um, so VTA, VTIAX is just the total stock market fund, right? Here it is. It's the mutual fund. Same thing as VTI. Um, let's open up another window. And the other ticker is um, VFSAX. The FTSE All World, excluding U.S. small, do I know this fund? Excluding U.S. small cap? What is this? VF, did I have it right? Yeah. All World, except, really? Have I ever looked at this fund before? So it's all, it's non-U.S. I don't know what. Well, maybe it's excluding, oh, no, it's small cap. I got it. All right, I'm with you. So this is a small cap international fund. Got it. This is the, obviously, the, I said international uh, total stock fund, total international stock fund. So it's not like VTI. Sorry about that. It's probably comparable to, is it comparable to VXUS? So the way you can figure that out is if you go to Vanguard's site, it'll say, hey, we've got an Admiral Share mutual fund that's the same thing. And it is VTIAX. Yeah. Okay. So fine. Okay. I'm finally here. I'm on the same page, I think. So what are your questions? Owning each fund in a portfolio based on capitalization sizes and country allocation. Well, the way I like to look at this, if we go to, we'll go to the portfolio pages. We're already there for this one of each. And what I like to do is look at weights, right? So this one Obviously, predominantly large cap. This is the total stock, international stock, but it does have some small cap exposure. Um, and this one is all small and medium, or almost all small and medium. Uh, and so, well, okay, so your question is capitalization sizes and country allocation. Let's talk about cap capitalization sizes. Um, so, at least in the US market, you know, there's a lot of history that says small cap and particularly small cap value has um, long-term outperformed, uh, frankly, most other asset classes. And so that's why you'll often see a small cap value allocation in a portfolio, including one I use. Paul Merriman, I think, is probably a really big proponent of that. Um, now, in the international, we can actually look at these funds. Let's see how much data we get. We'll go to um, the portfolio, and we'll put in the tickers. So again, we've got VTIAX and we'll put in uh, 100%, and the other one is VFSAX. And let's see, we have, oh, why do we want to get this? Uh, let me, um, yeah, that doesn't give us any data to speak of. Let's do, I don't know how old VXUS is. Oh no, that's the wrong one. Yeah, we can't look at that data. I don't know that this has a, um, an alternative that we can look at. Let me just go and Google FSAX. Those new to the show are probably wondering, what in the world is this guy doing? Yeah, sometimes I don't know. VSS, well, I doubt we're gonna get more data, but let's at least try. And then I have another way to look at this if we can't see what we get. Ah, that's 10 years. 
It's still not a ton of data, but, um, and it's interesting, you can see here, it, they're almost identical, um, which kind of surprises me a bit. Uh, we could, um, one other thing we could do, we could, we could go to um, asset allocation, right? And then we can look, this will give us more data, we could do sort of, um, we'll do, uh, We'll just do this like a total, I think. And then small cap fund. Again, these are asset classes, not specific funds. And yeah, so it shows at least long-term small cap has done better. Uh, this is over a long period of time, which is what I would have expected. You can look at this in terms of rolling returns, but it's still going to show you that small cap has generally outperformed most of the time. Um, and that doesn't surprise me. So generally, so that's like after we've done all of that, what's all this mean? Uh, I think generally small cap exposure to some degree is a good thing in a portfolio. Now, for me, I've had a separate fund for U.S. small cap. For international, I've generally just had a total fund that includes small cap. Um, I've not generally added another fund to get additional small cap exposure, but I certainly think it's a reasonable approach to investing. Uh, and I know Paul Merriman, I think, does that too in his portfolio. Now, in terms of, uh, you asked about country allocation, the way you figure that out uh, is, again, let me show you, we go to the portfolio page. This is the total international stock fund, and you can just come down uh, to region or country, but we can compare that. I don't know that it is, would it be dramatically different? I guess we can look. Let me uh, see if I can put these side by side. Hang on. Got to fire up keyboard maestro, which allows me to do things like this. So this is the total, the total international, right? Yeah. So we go down here to country, or we'll look, we'll look at it region. So, I mean, there are definitely differences. Uh, I don't know that the differences would make me feel strongly one way or another. They're very similar. Um, the small cap has more North America, but I don't, th I don't think I'd be making personally between these two funds, and you might have them both, right? Um, but I don't think I'd be personally would be making a decision based on country exposure. What do you think? Yeah, if you want me to respond to a comment or topic, please tag me because I skip over anything that doesn't have my name in bright orange. Hmm, this is an interesting question from Karen. Do you think it's worth it to pay for a prestigious and very expensive college, or is it a better idea to get a decent state school and save a ton of money? Well, I, I, uh, it depends. I mean, I generally err on this. It depends, first of all, what kind of degree you're getting. Uh, and will the degree pay for itself? So if you're going to go to a prestigious school and go into debt 
200 grand for a degree in English, it's probably a bad idea. Um, but on the other hand, if you, if you got into MIT and you want to get a degree in, you know, computer science, probably not a bad idea. So it depends on what your degree is. Also depends on how you're going to pay for it. I mean, I generally don't like the idea of going into debt more than one times your starting salary in your field, whatever you think that could be. And for a lot of people, that rules out very expensive schools. But again, you know, if you're going to go into a highly technical field, you know, and you're going to become an engineer, you know, at Google, you, you can probably handle the debt. So uh, to me, that's the question. What field are you going into? What kind of degree are you going to get? What do you expect, uh, you know, your income potential to be? I think the people that get into a lot of trouble, apart from those that borrow a lot and then don't graduate, which is like the worst, one of the worst things, uh, unfortunately, that can happen. Um, but, you know, when you read a lot of these stories about folks that, you know, spent 150 grand in debt and they're, they're working at Starbucks, I'm sure that's not universally true, but they generally have liberal arts degrees. By the way, I majored in English, so I'm not, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with a liberal arts degree. Uh, but, you know, they don't pay well, generally. Always exceptions. I went to law school, but um, that to me is the bigger issue, Karen. Uh, what degree you're going to get? What are you going to do with it? And how how much can that justify? You know, X dollars in debt. And you know, if you can go to a prestigious school, all other things being equal, I think it's a good thing to do. Um, but with all those caveats, so I, that's how I think about it. It's more about how much debt your future career can sustain. Um, hope that helps. That's my, that's how I think about it. Tanner wants me to rate uh, their, their, their um, Roth IRA portfolio real quick. 21 years old. Well, first of all, welcome to the show. You're 21. You're, you've got a Roth IRA and you're evaluating the portfolio, let me just tell you right now, you're light years ahead of the vast majority of people. 50% VTI, which is total U.S. stock market. 25% SCHD, um, which is um, a good fund. I'll pull it up. It's a Schwab dividend fund, I think, right? I know it is. There it is. We've talked about this fund before. So it's a large cap fund. It's it's tilted a little bit towards value because it, you know the, the dividend gives it away, but you can see it here. Good fund. So that's basically 75% U.S. large cap with a, a value tilt, right? I think that's perfectly fine. 15% in VXUS, the Vanguard Total International Fund. That's great. 10% in BND. I love it. I wish I were investing in that when I was 21. I was still in school. Really no excuse, though. I should have been investing. I wasn't. Dane, should my wife and I open up separate Roth uh, accounts, or can we just open up one? It's a great question. Uh, well, first of all, you cannot open a joint retirement account. And that may not be what you were getting at. But you can't open up a joint IRA. It's either yours or one spouse or the other. Um, now, what you might be saying, you may, you may know that, and what you might be saying is, yeah, I got that, but we can't max out. Let's say you can put in 5000 this year. 
So maybe your question is, should I just open it up in one of our names, but all 5,000 in, or should we open up one in each of our names and put 2,500 in each? Um, I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong answer to that. I can tell you that for me, I would want accounts in both names. I just, I don't know. just, I don't want it to get, I don't want money to be an issue. Now, you know, it helps. Every situation is different. My wife and I have been married for 33 years. Something like that. I think that's right. Hope she's not listening. Anyway, you know, when we got married, we had nothing. You know, we, when, when I went to law school, we lived on Beacon Street. Right, right close, well, right in Kenmore Square, just outside Kenmore Square, right near the, the, the um, Fenway. We lived on the fifth floor of a, fi- of a five-story brownstone. No elevator. You had to walk up the flights of stairs to get, there was two, two apartments on each level. Uh, no elevator, no air conditioning, no laundry facility in the building. So you carted your laundry down five flights of stairs and then down the street. Roach infested, no parking spot, and we could barely afford it. We had nothing. And so when you you know you start a life with someone and you guys have nothing, and then you just slowly, slowly build together, um, it, you know, there's just a trust in terms of money, and I mean, every relationship you know can go different ways, but uh, still. It's very important to me that my wife has her own retirement accounts, and she does. Um, now, I did. I worked more than she did in terms of a, a you know a, a W two job with four hundred one k, but it was very important to me that she has her own accounts. Now, obviously, and I shouldn't say obviously, but if when one of us passes, all the retirement accounts go to the other. So at some point, presumably, they, you know, uh, hopefully many years from now, that's going to happen. But I still felt, and I don't know. I don't know if I don't know if I know how she thinks about this. To be honest with you, um, but that it was important to have accounts in, in her name uh, um, as well as, as mine. So I would have two. Yeah, you could fund one one year and the other than the other year, or split it in two. And but I would have. That's what I would do. Now, it's a Roth, by the way. So if, if it's a traditional, you also want to think about ages. You know, now maybe you're the same age or one year apart. But I mean, I would at least consider ages because eventually, particularly if there's a, a, a more significant age difference, RMDs will kick in sooner for one spouse than the other. You might want to delay those. So you could actually, I could actually see saying, like, I want to put as much of the traditional as I can in the, in the younger spouse's name, potentially. I don't know. I have to think through that. It, it would at least be something I would think about. Did it? Uh, this is from Violent. Did it occur to you to buy during the COVID crash? No, because I didn't have money to buy. You know, I was, in, I was fully invested. Uh, I, well, I continued with, let's see, at that time I was an employee of Forbes. Hey, was I? I think I was. So I was investing in the 401k. I didn't, didn't change a thing. But I didn't have like a lot of cash on the side that I could just start investing. So, but I didn't sell anything other than for tax loss harvesting, and that got reinvested. So, <laughs> Shorty says, came in late. What happened to the basement? Well, so tomorrow, 
I am taking all this stuff, which you can't see. I wonder if there's a way to show you. Probably not without breaking something. Um, down to the basement. And hopefully when I get it down there, I'll remember how to assemble it all and what cords, what cords get plugged in where. So uh, for any videos I do this week and for the live show on Thursday, it will be in the basement. I hope the sound is okay. Uh, I have to figure that out. You know, we will be, and, and then whether that's permanent or not, I don't know yet. My wife will tell me. Uh, you digger. Can you address fund overlap and explain if it's a big issue if I have VFIAX and VTSAX in the same portfolio? Sure. So um, let's look at these. VFIAX is, um, okay, yeah, it's just the, the Vanguard 500, and VTSAX is the total stock market. So there's a lot of overlap between those. Um, and, and so I, I don't think it's like, a mistake to own them both in the same portfolio. Like, you know, you're, oh, that's, we're doing something wrong and this is really bad, but I think it's unnecessary. So um, there's a good tool for overlap, but it only works as far as I know with ETFs. And here it is, but we can, we can use the ETF versions of the two funds that you just mentioned. And you can see that the, the overlap is 83%. And you can actually go um, company by company to see how much is weighted in each. Uh, so there's a lot of overlap. And I did a video on VTI versus VU, which you can search for and look at. But when we look at the historical data, there's not much difference in the performance of these two funds. So is it a mistake to hold them in the same portfolio? No. And in fact, there could be reasons why you would. So for example, maybe you want you prefer total stock market and that's what you have in your taxable account and your IRAs, but at work, they don't have that fund. They just have an S and P 500. Yeah, so you own that in your 401k. So there, you know, there could be, re and I'm sure that I've, that's been the case for me. I'm sure at different times where I've owned both. That's okay. Jacob, what do you think? I'm doing on time, 810. So I'm going to go on to 830 tonight, hour and a half. I'll do two hours on, on Thursday. What do you think of JL Collins' advice to invest 100% in a U.S. index such as VTI? I don't actually think he's 100%. I think he's 80-20. Of course, he's retired. But I'm not a fan of it. I mean, by the way, he's not alone. I mean, you know, Warren Buffett, you know, his portfolio for individual investors, 90% S&P 500, 10% short-term treasuries. Uh, Jack Bogle was a big in U.S. only. Um, and, and, you know, if we look at history, uh, particularly recent history, and now what's going on in the world, boy, I mean, you know, the argument for, hey, just own U.S. stocks has probably never been better. I'm just not comfortable doing that. I want more exposure internationally. I mean, I understand that the U.S. market has performed so well. Our country, you know, uh, has just grown economically uh, in, in an amazing way uh, since World War II. Um, and I hope it continues to do that, but, uh, I'm just not comfortable putting all of my eggs in that basket. Now, most of our investments are in us based companies, but I, I prefer some exposure to international. Hmm. Darren says, is it good practice to have passive investments 
like an index fund, in a retirement account, and individual stocks in a non-retirement account. Um, well, putting the issue aside of you know index funds versus individual stocks, I don't know why. I'm trying to think if it makes a difference. I mean, there have been times where I've invested in individual stocks in retirement accounts because I like the ability to, I like the tax either free or deferred growth um, and the, the ability to make changes without triggering taxes. So, um, but, but having said that, as I think about it, probably most people that I know that invest in individual stocks do it in their taxable account. Of course, that could be in part because it could be difficult to do it in a 401k, not impossible, like with Fidelity, and they, they have your ability to go outside what your 401k offers. Depends on who your 401k is with. Of course, in an IRA, you can do whatever you want. So I don't know that there's necessarily a reason to do that. Um, but it probably, Darren, is, in my experience, is how most people do it. And until recently, most of our individual stocks were in a taxable account. But I have some. I own, it was down today, I own Wells Fargo um, in an IRA. And it almost, I think it basically doubled in a year. Although it's come down now. Um, I think it was down today. Yeah, down 1.37%. That's not good. Anyway, uh, but I, I don't know that you necessarily have to divide it that way. I think it's perfectly reasonable to do so. Also, by the way, uh, as I think this through, depends what stocks you're investing in. I would not invest in AT&T in a taxable account. Well, at least not until they lower their, cut their dividend. I don't think they've done that yet. You know, if you're if you're in high dividend paying stocks, I'm not sure I'd want that in a taxable account. I mean, it is qualified or should be, um, but still, I wouldn't want like uh, a stock that's paying off four, five, six. I mean, what's AT and T like seven percent yield or something ridiculous? I think I've got it in here. Yeah, in my fancy phone, uh, the yield eight point seven percent. Holy cow. Um, yeah, I wouldn't hold that in a, in a taxable account. Um, on the other hand, Berkshire is great in a taxable account. Investing with Aaron. Uh, I am requesting a trustee to trustee transfer between HSA providers. Local HSA bank will only send a paper check and not an ACH transfer. Takes four to six weeks. Is that normal? Well, that's not normal. Well, in my experience, it is, it's not un unusual, whether you're talking about an HSA or say a 401k rollover, that they deal in paper checks. Now, the way I've always done it is they make the check out to, let's say you're going to send this to Fidelity. However, Fidelity wants the check made out to and you know, for the benefit of your name. But it's it's not unusual. In my experience, in fact, I just rolled over, I used Capitalize uh, to help me roll over um, a 401k and they, yeah, I got a check. Now, the interesting thing was, and this surprised me, I don't know why, I was able to, once I got the check, you know, I was going to put it in a, you know, Capitalize gives you the envelope with stamped and addressed to put the check in and send it to Vanguard or Schwab or Fidelity or wherever you're sending it. I'm like, well, that's convenient. But it turns out that with a lot of these brokers, you can actually just snap a picture of, of your rollover check and deposit it that way, which is great. But four to six weeks, yeah, that's crazy to me. I've never seen that before. That seems unusual to me. 
But, you know, local bank, you know, who knows? Bingo knows, wants to know. Why aren't they teaching investing in finances in grade school or high school? Is teaching of money deemed to be materialistic and not worth our time? Well, you know, it's interesting. uh, In Northern Virginia, where we live, our kids took a finance course in high school. And in college, I know our daughter did. They actually taught a curriculum kind of patterned on Dave Ramsey. Uh, And all of which I think is great. And I wish more schools would do it. So I don't know what it's like where you guys live, but at least here they had to take a finance course in high school. And then our daughter took one in college. I don't think our son had to take one in college that I know of. But it's a good idea. Okay. Dane, is it a bad idea, in your opinion, for my wife and I to have our money in the same place, i.e. the same S&P 500 fund or bond fund in our Roth? No. I mean, with my wife and I, I look at all of our accounts and, you know, from an asset allocation perspective. I I don't invest, I don't separate hers out and do an asset allocation and then separate mine out and do an asset allocation. And then, then look, I guess, at our joint taxable account and do an asset allocation. I look at everything. Now, there might be circumstances where it might make sense to do it on a person-by-person basis, particularly if there's a significant age difference, maybe. Um, but I do it all at one. And so, like, if you were to look at one of our accounts, randomly picked my rollover IRA, You'd look at it and you'd say, what in the world is this? It's like 70% bonds and then some emerging market. (laughs) What is this guy doing? Why have I been listening to his show? Holy cow. Um, But it's because I'm worried. I'm not worried, but I'm putting assets in certain types of accounts like we've talked about. And I don't care that any one account has got some weird allocation as long as the overall allocation is what I want. And, you know, when I start taking money out, could that change things? Maybe. But again, at least with tax deferred accounts, I can rebalance and not worry about taxes. So um, at least for now, it's fine. I don't know when we get to RMDs, would, would that change? I don't know that it would. I mean, I could see taking RMDs and to the extent we don't spend them, you know, you know, there's no law that says you got to spend your required minimum distribution. To the extent we don't spend it, uh, it would go to our taxable account, and I might invest it in stocks, and then go back into the the target, uh, the the traditional fund that generated the RMD, and perhaps reallocate within that fund to build back up my bond exposure, maybe. But in any event, to answer your question, no, I don't. I, I, I as long as it's in some way, part of an overall asset allocation plan, the fact that you both have an IRA that both that, that say invests in an S and P five hundred index fund, as an example, I don't no, I don't see an issue with that at all. Brian confirms that to go to the Berkshire Hathaway meeting, you do mail something back in. Tell us more what the advisor said. So I didn't. You know, I've done, as you probably figured out, I've done a lot of analysis on my own. I've used new retirement is probably my favorite tool. Although I've also been spending some time on trajectory. Um, 
So there were no real surprises. Uh, uh, you know, we talked a lot about Roth conversions. You know, basically, the this is the trick. There's there's a lot of assumptions that go to Roth conversions, but basically, what what these tools try to do, among other things, is figure out what tax bracket your RMDs will put you in, and then uh, if and then the suggestion, the idea is you should do Roth conversions up to that same tax bracket. Now, that is a gross generalization. Think of it not even as a rule of thumb. Think of it as a starting point for further analysis because there's all kinds of uh, things that go into whether it still makes sense. Chief among them is whether you're paying the taxes out of a taxable account versus the IRA itself. Um, but they always assume you're going to pay it on a taxable account, which is the way to do it. But I mean, again, are you going to make qualified distributions out of out of your RMDs? Um, what do you think tax policy is going to do? Are, are rates going to go up? Um, how's it going to affect potentially tax on Social Security, IRMA for um, uh, Medicare premiums? Um, so, you know, and then, and then you can have all this planned out and it going to going according to plan. And then one spouse could die. And the, the living spouse, unless they remarry right away, the next year, they're now a single tax filer. And so all of the careful planning with all those tax brackets you'd figured out are now different. So, but, but generally, um, you know, we, so that's what we spent a lot of time talking about. Um, in terms of like how much I can spend in retirement, nothing really new there. How much money we'd have, you know, if we lived to be 100 or whatever, not much new there. They, you know, he confirmed that he didn't think we needed long-term care insurance, that it, you know, we could get it if we wanted it, but don't really need it. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about how we want to spend our money. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. We haven't really figured that out yet. It's not like a lot of stuff I want to buy. Oh, I did buy. Let me show you what I bought. Oh, yeah. Giddy up. There it is, baby. I bought me one of those. That's a Rogue Fitness sled. So basically, if you're not familiar, you put a lot of weight on it, and then you start pushing it around your driveway, down the street maybe. Um, a great way a great way to do this is to actually see the strap there and you can put it around your waist and then walk backwards great for your quads particularly if you're like me and you've got back issues and you don't really not really smart to put a ton of weight on your shoulders uh, at the gym that i went to before covid my wife still goes i might end up going back my reason for not going now has nothing to do with covid but he uh the owner justin former marine great guy well, we would do these classes and we would take, he has a bigger, bigger sleds in his gym, but we would take him apart, take him outside onto this, this street where his gym is located. And it's a street that doesn't get, it's a dead end street, but it's, I think it's a quarter mile to the main street. And so we'd be in teams pushing this sled down, you know, and then someone else would take over and then you're pushing it back and it's uphill. So anyway, yeah, I mean, I spend money on something like that, but we don't, you know, all things considered, we don't spend a ton of money. So anyway, we spent a lot of time talking to the advisor about that. But yeah, I wouldn't say I learned a lot. All right. How are we doing on time? A few more. So uh, Aaron says, how would you set up bucket two with Vanguard funds? I'm, I'm not sure what you mean by that. You'd like a two bucket strategy? So to me... 
if, if I understand your question right, the bucket strategy, I think, only starts to make sense when you've got three buckets. Because the idea is, and the way this was, the whole bucket strategy, which started from an advisor in Florida, began was, you have one bucket with all your investments, whatever, whatever that is, whatever your allocation is, you know, three fund portfolio, whatever, it's in, it's in what we'll call a bucket. And then you have cash, is in the second bucket, say, in your checking account. And I'm thinking... I don't understand why you're calling that a bucket strategy because how else are you going to do it? I mean, you got to spend money. You got to put it in some kind of spending account. I mean, so I'm not even sure why we give this, this two bucket thing a name. Why don't we just call it, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> uh, so, but what people did was they took that bucket strategy and they said, well, you know what? Let's add a third bucket. So we'll have stocks, we'll have bonds, and we'll have cash. And that's where I think the bucket strategy stops making sense. Initially, it has a lot of appeal, but I think it stops making sense and becomes more of a headache to try to manage. And I've done a video on that, so you can check it out to see my view on it. And that may not have been what you were asking, uh, so I'm sorry if I got your question wrong. Dan says, thanks for the show. I have cash on the sideline, so it's not in the game. It's like next to the coach, waiting to get in. 20%. I've been buying into the dips and on a monthly basis. Would you have done this differently? How would you go about this? Well, uh, it depends what I'm investing in. If you've got your basic asset allocation, I would just invest in it, whatever that is. If you're buying, let's say, individual stocks, maybe this is a part of your portfolio like I have where you're investing in individual stocks, I don't really think about buying into the dips. For first of all, you don't know if it's a dip until it's over and it goes back up. Then, it, then you can look back and say it's a dip. But in the meantime, you don't know if it's a dip or not. Um, and I look more at valuation. So in other words, you know, Apple might go down by 5%. That doesn't mean I'm going to buy it. Uh, you, you know, it would have to probably go down a lot for me to buy. Now, Apple is probably a bad example because my exposure to it's already probably too high. But like Berkshire Hathaway. Um, you know, I, you know, I look at valuation. I think it's probably reasonably valued to be my, you know, back of the napkin guess. Um, but you know, I'm not going to just buy cause the market goes down by 2% or something for Berkshire. Um, same thing with banks. I'm going to look at valuation and, um, I'm going to want it to be a sort of a wide margin. So in my case for the individual stocks, I can wait a while to buy and I'm going to, I'm going to want to wait until it's not, it's not market timing in the sense that let's say we have a market, a bear market and stocks go down by 25%. I'll likely buy something at that point, but it won't be with the view that, Oh, we're down 25%. So now the market's going to go up. Uh, it's going to be the view of it's a good, I'm, I'm buying at a price that I think is a good value. And I have no idea what the market's going to do over the next six months or a year it could go down another 25%. I don't know. So that's how I think about it. Right now, there aren't great deals, at least that I can find, for the kinds of companies I would buy. Ankit says, thanks for sharing the Omaha experience. I want to go. Yeah, they have great steakhouses too. Maybe we could all go get a good steak. Although some of Buffett's preferred steakhouses, I thought were just okay. I hate to say that. I think one, one great restaurant we, we went to, I think it was Italian, closed, actually. 
Um, anyway, you go to this like not fancy, I'll call it a mall. It's more like a strip mall, but there's like an indoor space. And that's where they had the table tennis and the chess playing. But there's a jewelry store there. I don't, I forget the name of it. I don't know what the connection is with Warren Buffett. If he owned, I don't know, but they sell high-end jewelry. I mean, you know, very expensive. So we didn't buy anything. But you go in there and you look around and all the rich people are there buying something, I guess. But Warren Buffett's there. That's where I got the closest to him. He's tall. And but I'm gonna tell you, the bodyguards, ginormous. I would not make any sudden moves towards Warren Buffett. That would be a mistake. All right, Kelly. This will be the last question of the night. I always hate to do that. There could be great questions down here. I'm just missing them. Hopefully, you'll come back Thursday. A lot of good questions. Anyway, um, I might fire my 1%. By the way, I'm writing a novel, and I'm going to self-publish it, just like I self-published my first book. And I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun, and I think you'll like it. My, I'm, I'm telling you this so you can hold me accountable. My goal is to publish it before the end of the year. And I'm really just at the beginning, but it in, so it involves it involves the main character investigates financial crimes in this, and I, I I envision a number of books with this character, and the the I can tell you this without giving anything away the bad guy in this first novel is a financial advisor that charges like one percent of AUM. <laughs> I know what you're thinking, Rob. How can you make that a page turner? Well, we're going to find out. Maybe I can't. I don't know. Uh, I might fire my 1% assets under management financial advisor, but nervous because I'm no expert. Yeah, I hear you. Just listen to JL Collins's book on YouTube. Could it be that simple? How hard is it to find a, a, oh, a financial advisor paid by the hour? Well, it's not that hard. I've mentioned Mark Zorro before. Plan Vision is um, his company. I don't know what his fee is now. You know, he does everything by Zoom and it's, it's, a, it's like a monthly fee, but it's very low. I don't know if he has, uh, but you can reach out to him. Um, another one is, um, I'm pretty sure Rick Ferry. Uh, let's see. He does investment analysis. So the idea behind these kinds of, so there's Rick. I've known Rick for, I don't know, a decade. He was on my podcast years ago. We see each other most years at a conference. Um, the way these work, they're not going to actually manage your investments for you, but he could look at it and do an analysis and say, okay, this is a good asset allocation. Here are the funds to own. Maybe Mark Zorro could do the same thing. Um, so he's another example. Um, I'm sure there are others, but those are two that I know of, and I would be comfortable using either one. But, you know, that's not a recommendation. I have no financial incentive with either of them, you know, no financial arrangement with either of them. Um, you know, you want to do your due diligence, but those are two uh, examples. Um, and then depending on where you have your assets, like, you know, and how much you have, you know, you might be able to get the broker. Like if you're at Fidelity or Schwab or Vanguard, they might do an analysis for you as well. Um, and so you could you could do that as, as well. So those are some examples. 
trying to think if there's any others. I want to kind of create a database. And I start to do this, but I, I, you know, if you guys have, you can email me. But if you know advisors that just charge hourly, or maybe they charge assets under management, but it's relatively low, I would say anything below 50 basis points. Um, I wouldn't mind like creating a, a list that I can publish on my website and then you guys could, you know, I can just add to it over time. And I need to do that because um, I do have some already uh, that I can put in there, even if it's not a lot and just add to it. So, yeah, there you go. Um, so that's it. Uh, oh, I did, I did promise that we would do. Um, did I show you, Rick? Yeah, I did. Right. I did promise at the beginning that I would do one chess puzzle. Now, if you're, if you're like, Rob, what are, what are you talking about? Well, yeah, I used to do chess puzzles at the end of this live show. And I stopped doing them because, you know, it's not really a chess show. But I, I did say, well, okay, we'll do one puzzle. So I have to kind of warn you. Um, these can be hard. So um, this is my chess.com account. And uh, this is just a rating they give. I was over 3,000, but as you can see, I've missed some problems. So um, this is the puzzle. It's black to move. White just moved the king here. Um, and, I, and I have no idea what the answer is. But um, some things are coming to mind. So the idea is you guys need to figure out the answer to this and then, and then put your guess in the comments, which so far no one's guessed. I'm looking at the chat. So uh, my eyes immediately go to something like queen to h3, check, uh, which I know the king can take it, but, or maybe rook c2, check. Um, and I think the rook has to interpose, right? Because if the king goes here, rook h2 is checkmate, right? And if the king goes here, well, rook h2 is checkmate, right? Because the king obviously can't go here and can't go there. So, um, the rook has to go here. And I don't know if I could take, but then that can't be right. Queen here, that doesn't look good. There, there, nope. Yeah, you see why the show really slows down when we get to chess problems, because I have to sit here and study this thing. And yeah, so far, no one has given me any help with some suggestions. problem is, is once this queen moves, white's got all kinds of checks. I want to move my queen to h3 after the check at, at c2, but I can't quite make it work.
I don't know. And so far, not a single help from... Oh, wait, Knight H4 check. Who said that? Thomas. So Knight H4 check, presumably pawn takes, but then you get a queen check here. The question is, in my mind, and I looked at Knight H4, is what, what if he doesn't take? What if he just drops back to G2, or G1? I don't have a check. Well, I can bring my knight back, but... I can go queen here, threatening mate. But they could just pop the rook up. I don't know. This one's tricky. I guess I could just move and then just, you know, let the chips fall where they may. Oh, wait a minute. Does that work? No, I saw queen here, king takes, rook here, but he just goes there with the king. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Queen here, king takes, rook here. If the king goes back, rook h2 is, is mate. If the king goes here, rook or knight h2, right? The king can't go on this file because the rook is here. Can't go here because of the knight and the pawn. Can't go here because of the pawn. Can't go here because of the king. <laughs> maybe. And he went there. There we go. Whew. See, it's just so nerve-wracking trying to solve these puzzles in front of people. Anyway, there's your puzzle for the week. See, these are kind of hard. Well, they're hard for me. I don't know. All right, gang. As always, thanks for joining. You make this show a lot of fun. I'm As always, I'm sorry I can't get to all of your questions. But Lord willing and the creek don't rise. I'll be back Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern time for another two hours. So hope you hope you can join then. Hope to have some videos out this week as well. And uh, there you go. Stay safe. Until next time, remember, the best thing money can buy, financial freedom. And a rogue fitness sled. That's pretty good, too. <laughs>